How many of you guys grew up with a sibling? Just a show of hands. Had a sibling in the house, all right? Well, I grew up with a younger sister, and I didn't know this at the time. She's since told me this, but she really looked up to me. Uh, She actually thought I was much cooler than I really was. So she looked up to me. But we both went to the same high school for a few years, and it was my job until she got her license to drive her to school. And truth be told, I did not like this job. I was a senior at the time, and the last thing I wanted to do was drive my freshman little sister to school. And to make matters worse, she also had me pick up some of her friends on the way. So I'm driving a bunch of freshman girls, which I look back on now, that wasn't such a bad gig, but at the time, I didn't really love that. And so inevitably on these mornings, as she was running late, uh, I would get pretty irritated, and the conversation would at some point take the turn to that phrase that all siblings end up saying, and that's, you're not the boss of me, right? As I tell her what to do, Stephen, you are not the boss of me. As much as she looked up to me, she didn't think that highly of me. Now, I've got two daughters, and I will admit that there were a season where those, that phrase was said a lot in our house as well. Well, this week we're starting a new series on the book of James. And James is maybe the most, has most of the interesting childhood ever. We don't really know a lot about it, but I just think this had to be the craziest growing up experience ever because the James that wrote the letter that we're going to be reading is the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus. Well, actually, technically, the half-brother. Uh, Mary was both their mothers. Jesus' father, actually, was God. But his earthly father there was Joseph, and so they were half-brothers. And can you imagine if Jesus was your brother? I mean, he really is the boss of you, right? (laughs) And while my sister looked up to me, I promise you, she never thought of me as her Lord, as much as I might have wanted her to feel that way. In the book of Acts, in chapter 15 and 21, we see that James was a prominent leader in the church. This letter that we're going to look at for the next several weeks is possibly the earliest writing we have in in all of Christendom after the resurrection of Jesus. So the earliest record, the earliest scriptures that we have very well might be this letter of James. James wrote this letter in the 40s, not the 1940s, not the 1840s, the 40s just a few years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And James served as an early leader in the church, and he was later martyred. He was beaten to death for professing his faith in his brother. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? (laughs) See, the life of James is maybe one of the most compelling proofs we have of the divinity of Jesus. Think about this. He believed that his brother, who he grew up with, was his Lord. Enough that he gave his life for that belief. But James didn't always believe. We're told in John chapter 5 that even his brothers, it says, don't believe in him. And later in Mark, we see that Jesus' own family took him away from this crowd because they said he's just crazy. So what changed? James saw his dead brother alive. James saw the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians, we read about Jesus meeting up with his brother after the resurrection. And, that, and after that, James's life was never the same. It was all true. Everything he had said, everything he had seen, 
And can you just imagine how the puzzle pieces were going together? Things were finally clicking. Things were finally making sense. The book of James is often called the most practical book in all the New Testament. And it feels like a mixture of hearing both Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and maybe some Old Testament in the Proverbs. And that makes sense because James was also a student of the Torah. He knew the Old Testament. And he had a front row seat to the teachings of Jesus. See, James helps us live out our faith in a way that can help us change the world. It changes our own world. And James wants us to see that. He talks about trials, poverty, riches, materialism, favoritism, racism, anger, boasting, making plans, praying, what to do when you're sick. James is a book that puts our faith into action. The letter of James is to the displaced Jews of the time who were putting their faith into action. These new early Christians were taking the teachings of Jesus as they recognized him as the resurrected Messiah. And they were seeing what Jesus said, how do we live this out in real life? The subtitle of our series is James, a faith that works. Because it does, it works in our life and it involves us doing things to help us to get to know God better. Ronald Blue in his commentary said this about the book of James. He said, the purpose of this potent letter is to exhort the early believers to Christian maturity and holiness of life. This letter deals more with the practice of the Christian faith than with its precepts. James told his readers how to achieve spiritual maturity through a confident stand, compassionate service, careful speech, contrite submission, and concerned sharing. He deals with every area of a Christian's life, what he is, what he does, what he says, what he feels, and what he has. Now, as we go through the book of James, some people, they often think James is a tough book because they say it just seems random, like he's just spilling out all these different things. But the beginning of James that we're going to look at this morning and also the end of James establish a framework for everything James is trying to tell us. He's going to unpack some of these trials, these situations that we face in our life throughout the book. But this first section here sets the tone for what we're going to be reading. Remember, this is a letter that was written to the church, not just a single church. Now, some of the, the letters we have in the Bible written to specific churches. This is written to a broad range of the Jews who are displaced, who are fleeing because of the persecution they're facing. Most of them are poor and, and struggling because of their belief in God. Their faith in Jesus Christ has pushed them to the margins of society. And James is writing this to all those folks. He wants them to understand how they can live out their faith. And when this letter arrived to the various churches that received it, the church would have gathered, much like we are here, and they would have read the entirety of this letter. Now, we're not going to do that today, although I want to encourage you. James is a very short letter. You can read it in about a little less than 15 minutes. And so I want to encourage you this week and every week as you go through this to read the letter of James in its entirety. We're not going to do that right now, but we are going to, over the next six weeks, read through this entire book. So let's open up our Bibles, if you got them this morning, and look at the letter of James. And I'm going to read the first 18 verses this morning. Remember, this is James speaking to the church, which means us as well. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop here just for a quick second. I won't talk throughout this whole thing, I promise. But 
This introduction is so amazing. Because that's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm the brother of Jesus, listen to me. He could play that card and we would listen to him. But he says, I am a slave. I'm a servant, your Bible might say, a bond servant, some translations say, of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people read this, they knew who James was. He was a leader in the church. They knew he was Jesus' brother, but that's not what he hangs his hat on. He hangs his hat on being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad, greetings. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask, for ge- ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you're being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong. And he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word, and we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this word that we're going to dive into, this letter from your brother James. God, I ask that that our hearts would be open as we go through this study over the next few weeks to hear what you have for us. Lord, this is a challenging letter. There are things in here that are convicting, that are uncomfortable. But Lord, you've laid this out for us as a way to put our faith into action, to grow as mature disciples, to be changed by you. And so Lord, I ask that each and every one of us would open our hearts to hear from you this morning. Lord, no matter what words I might say, these scriptures would speak powerfully truth, powerful truth to our hearts. That we would leave here changed that we know you more and that we would live out our love to you more and more in everything that we do, that we would have a faith that works, a faith that's in action, a faith that when people see us, they see you. God bless our time together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church together said, 
Amen. Well, let's look at this first couple verses here. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. There are parts of the Bible that I don't like. That might surprise you. There are probably parts of the Bible you don't like either. This is one of them. I don't love this verse. But it's here. And it's here for you and it's here for me. James says, when you face trials. Not if. When. In this room, whether you're here, whether you're watching online, whether you're here this morning right now in this moment, or you might be watching this later on in weeks to come, you are facing trials. All of us are. We all face trials. And James says here, you can expect them when you face trials. Some translations say trials of various kinds. This one says troubles of any kind. So what kind of troubles is James talking about? You lost your job. That's a trial of many kind. You failed the big test at school. It's a trial of many kind. Your car died and you have no money to fix it. That's a trial of many kind. You got the call. The diagnosis is bad. That's a trial of many kind. Your spouse cheated on you. It's a trial of many kind. You show up on Sunday morning and your projector screens don't work. It's a trial of many kind. I think God's trying to tell us something here. James says, when you face trials of any kind, and I think there's a reason that he didn't specify what they were, because his point is you will face trials. Because if there's a list, then we try to compare our trials to each other, or we think, well, this isn't as bad as this, or, or, or this is what he's talking about. And he's saying, no, 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 listen, we are going to face trials, big, small, it doesn't matter. You are going to face trials. Now, there are some believers, even well-meaning ones, who will tell you otherwise. They'll paint a picture uh, that is either trying to deceive you, or they've been deceived themselves that when you're walking with Jesus, you don't have troubles. They'll say living a life of faith that works means you don't get sick or means you won't be poor or that your spouse won't cheat on you, that you won't get cancer or that you can name it and claim it and you can have all that God wants for you. You can manifest good vibes or good health or good relationship. And that's not true because we're told you will face trials. And some of these are the regular rhythms of life. And some of these crazy, powerful tsunamis that come out of nowhere. And the reality is on this side of eternity, we will face trials. We live in that space between the sin in the garden and the coming again of Jesus Christ. And in that space between, we will face trials of many kind. John 16.33 tells us, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, this is Jesus talking, you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. So right out of the gate with this, James just comes out swinging. And this seems totally crazy to me. Maybe it does to you too. So you're supposed to enjoy your trials? 
God's testing me? Yes. Now, again, I don't like that, but God says he will test us. But we need to understand what he means by consider it joy. How many of you can remember back to your school days liked test days? There are those, yeah, there's, those, there's weird oddballs in here that like test day. But most of us, we didn't like test day. James isn't saying you have to enjoy your tests. He's saying consider it all joy. Or consider it pure joy. It's not a positive emotional reaction to your trials. What James is saying is consider it something different from what your natural reaction is to the trial. In other words, think about it differently. He tells us, and I love this, he says, you know this. He doesn't even have to prove it to them. He says, you know that your trials are how you grow. We intuitively just know this. It's true in life. Think about uh, those, you can tell that I don't do this, but those who have built muscles, right? You do that by tearing them down, by, by working them. They build stronger. No pain, no gain, right? That's what they sometimes say. We understand that growth happens from our trials. He says the testing of your faith, he says, produces endurance or perseverance. Some other scriptures tell us the same things in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Or Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes everything to work together, including our trials, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Augustine, the great theologian, said, Trials come to prove us and to improve us. So how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to get to the point where we consider our trials joy? James tells us in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, so if any of you can't understand this, if you're coming to your trial and you say, I don't know what to do with this. There's no way I'm looking at this with joy that I'm seeing a greater purpose in this. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. He's not going to blame you for asking him, for not seeing it the way he sees it. He says, and he, and it will be given to you. This reminds me of our theme verse for this year. If you remember back in January, we talked about everything we're, we're talking and studying through is helping to point to this one verse for our theme this year. And it's from Colossians chapter one. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. If you lack that spiritual wisdom to see your trial as an opportunity for growth, to see your trials as God testing and improving and building you, ask for it. He goes on in verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now guess what? 
I don't always view my trials with joy. I don't know if that shocks you or not. The pastor doesn't get this right often. Sometimes in a, I'm in the place spiritually where I see my trials as opportunities for God to work in me. But other times, often I don't. And James anticipated this. That's why he said, but when you don't, when you don't see God working all things for your good, ask him. Just a few weeks ago, I entered one of those moments where I was not seeing those trials with joy. And none of these things were, were big things, right? Uh, our car got rear-ended, and uh, my credit card got messed up, and I couldn't use any of my credit cards, actually, for a while. And our other car wouldn't go into reverse, and I was feeling overwhelmed here at church and feeling stressed. And then I've been dealing with this, I got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and, and this pain was driving me crazy. And these were all little things, but they just all came like a wave over and over and over again. They were all little trials. They weren't life shattering things. But I just reached that point, you know, where I just, it just, oh, I couldn't take it anymore. And some junk came out of me. I didn't look at these as trials or ways for God to grow me. I would start to, sometimes I would look at these and maybe even blame God, or at the very least, I didn't want to see these as opportunities for growth. I just wanted to get out of them. If I'm truthful about it, when I feel overwhelmed, I'm exactly what James is talking about here, double-minded, unstable Maybe you feel that way sometimes too. When life is just hitting you with these waves, sometimes they're not even the big ones, but just those little ones. Unstable. You want to know what that looks like? Ask my wife. <laughs> I can go from believing and trusting in God that he's got this. He's working all things together for my good to seconds later being overwhelmed with despair. Woe is me. See, in trials, we tend to turn inward to despair. So what are we supposed to do if we're not there yet? Ask God. If you're struggling to see how your trial can build you up before the Lord, ask Him. But wait, I'm struggling to believe, to see how God can use this trial for any good, but I'm not supposed to doubt? But if I'm doubting, I'm supposed to ask you to show me, but I'm not supposed to doubt what are we supposed to do with this? James is not saying we can never question God. That's not what this means. I love the way that Matt Chandler talks about this verse. He says there are two little prayers buried in the subtext of this passage. One is grant me wisdom. The other is increase my faith, kill my doubts. Both at the same time. And he points to a story in Mark chapter 9 of Jesus healing a boy who's demon-possessed. Jesus is talking with the boy's father, and he says this. He asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, from childhood. It was often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to kill him. And his father says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Do you see the paradox of these two things? I believe, but help me to believe. I believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. I believe in you, but I'm struggling to see you in this trial. And here's the point. We're supposed to trust him in our trials. Trust him in our trials. James goes on, he says, believers in humble circumstance ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich will fade away even as they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who believe him. Now James is going to talk more about how our wealth or our lack of it affects us later in the letter. But the point James is making right here is that we can't rely on external things for our security. Anything you're rich in has the potential to build your life on the wrong thing. And if you're poor, he says, recognize or rejoice that the circumstances that you're in are leading you to trust in God. If you're rich, be careful. Money can't fix everything. See, again, this, this is about reorienting our perspective. It's not changing the facts of the life that we're in, whether we're rich or poor, but it's how we look at it. Are we considering those trials joy? Trust him in your trials. Let him do his work in you. Don't be double-minded. Don't be unsettled. But in every trial, there is a shortcut. At least we think it's a shortcut. It's a way to get out of the trial without trusting in God's goodness. A way without being fully developed or to be made complete, to be mature, as James says. And he talks about this in the next verse, verse 13. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Who wants to give birth to death? That sounds terrible. So keep in mind, James is still talking about our response to trials and tests. He starts to use this word temptation, but he's saying in your trials, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to blame God for the things you're going through. And he wants to make sure something is clear. God uses trials to grow and mature us, but God doesn't tempt us to sin. See, when we face trials, it's easy for us to start casting blame. Someone once said, to err is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human. Don't blame your sin on your trials. How do we do this? It often sounds something like this. If he wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have fill in the blank. You faced a trial, and now you're blaming the trial for your sin. I, the way I was treated in my divorce is why I'm bitter. Blaming your trial for your sin. If you provided for my needs, I wouldn't have cheated on you. I wouldn't have used pornography. I wouldn't have whatever, fill in the blank. Blaming our sin on the trial. See, we've been doing this since Adam and Eve first took the fruit. 
What did Adam say to God when he gave in the temptation after facing the trial? That woman. He blamed Eve, who you gave me. Then he blamed God. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. See, Satan wants to use your trials to make you bitter. Satan wants to use the trials that you're going through to make you bitter. It's a temptation. And bitter just isn't a state of mind or an attitude. The actual definition of bitter, having a sharp, pungent taste or smell. Who wants that? But that's what Satan wants to have come out of you when you face trial, bitterness. Sharp, pungent taste or smell, not sweet. Satan wants to use your trials to make you bitter, but God wants to use your trial to make you better. Satan wants to make you bitter through the trials that you go through, for you to become jaded, for you to look at them and say, "Ah, I'm going to take a shortcut. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have to endure this. I'm going to find another way. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And God says, I want to use your trials to make you better. Some of you have gone through trials and they've made you bitter. Relationships that have gone bad. Job opportunities, something at work, something within your own family, something within this church. And that trial, instead of it refining you into who God wanted you to be, more into who he wanted you to be, more like Jesus, for you to be better, you've allowed that. You've given into that temptation for it to make you bitter. See, in trials, we, turn to turn, we tend to turn inward to despair or outward, usually in anger. That can look different depending on who we are in the situation. But when we're squeezed, when we, have, when we face the trials of many kinds, no matter what they are, our earthly tendency is to turn inward to despair or outward with sin. And we need to turn upward. Trust him in your trials, but turn to him in your temptations. Trust him in your trials, but turn to him in your temptations. Because every trial has an opportunity for a shortcut. In our trials, when things get tough, Satan always points it out like this. He says, you don't have to put up with this. You can get out of this. Take this other road. Strike back. Put him in his place. You deserve this. And if you give in to the temptation, it might be easier, at least at first, but you aren't going to grow mature, complete, as James tells us. We're not going to, as we've been talking about last week, the last couple weeks about being a disciple, becoming more like Jesus, being changed into who Jesus wants us to be, a reflection of him. Verse 16 Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, the God who created everything, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He says, don't be deceived. God has only good and perfect things in store for you, even in your trials. And his plan for us to grow is good and perfect, even when it's painful. 
Because the goal of that plan is to have us look more like Jesus. See, trials are inevitable. But growth is a choice. We face that in that moment when we face trials. Not if we face trials, when we face trials. It's an opportunity for God to grow us. There's an old hymn written in the 1800s by Priscilla Jane Owens. She wrote this song for children, and they probably sang it in Sunday school. You might have grown up singing this in church. The verse says, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? And the chorus, We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love see when the storms come and remember they will come do you have an anchor if you ever spent any time in the water you've seen one of these if you can all see that it's a buoy and they help mark boundaries for boats and for swimmers to keep them from danger and I remember as a little kid thinking that these things were just floating out there, right? They were just kind of like on their own doing their thing, but they aren't. They have an anchor. The anchor attached to the buoy allows it to remain steady when the wind and the waves blow over the sea. And sometimes those waves are small. They're rhythmic and recurring. Those trials like I talked about I faced a couple weeks ago, not earth shattering, but just those everyday things that happen. The predictable waves, you see them coming and they're not that bad. And you'll go through seasons where those come and give you enough time to catch your breath in between, but sometimes those just come back to back, like I experienced a couple weeks ago. And those are when they just overtake you if you're not anchored down. If you're not anchored, those waves, no matter how minor, can drag us off, entice us. But sometimes the waves are unpredictable and they look like this. They're huge and overtaking, coming from nowhere, coming from everywhere all at once. And both of the waves, the little rhythmic ones that just happen, those everyday things, and the giant catastrophes that we face, they're both dangerous. If the buoy isn't anchored, it's tossed by the wind and eventually we have no idea where we might end up. James is telling us we have to be anchored. Trust him in your trials. The storms will come. Those storms can make us bitter, or those storms can be used by God to make us better. And when the storm comes, don't turn inward in despair or outward in sin. Turn upward. Turn to him and your temptation. I found a prayer that someone had written, and I want to just share this as kind of a prayer for us this morning as we leave. It says, Dear Lord, I look to you. I look to you to bring me through every trial that I face today. Sometimes it's hard to remember that trials are part of the spiritual process designed to produce maturity, character, and integrity in my life. I confess that at times I wish you had some other way for me to grow. But I praise you, Lord, that along with the problems I face, you graciously provide me with wisdom and strength to carry on. Have your way in my life, dear Lord. Make me a child that you can be proud of. 
God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have in our trials to grow more like you, to become more of who you've created us to be. God, I know that in this room there are people that are facing those everyday gentle waves and there are people who are dealing with tsunamis of life that just are overwhelming. And God, in both of those, you say, be still and know that I am God. You can use those situations in our lives and our hearts to make us more like you. God, help us to see that in midst of the storms, in midst of the pain, to see what you're doing. Lord, we ask for wisdom. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the devil's conspiracy to try to drag us away for us to take matters into our own hands and allow us, Lord, to sit as you tell us to allow to the trial to make us complete who you created us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.